Welcome to the Centennials Podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Ian Bittle. And we are delighted to be joining you from sunny Chicago for Smack 2015, here in what is supposed to be the Windy City, but at the moment it's the Sunny City. It's a great week, Ian. It's a lovely week, and we just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you a little bit about the talks that we're doing this week as part of the conference. So, Ian, we've got a really interesting session where there's four talks all about being human and a doctor, really, about not just knowledge and skills, but about how we act, behave and feel in particularly as clinicians. Because I think one of the great things about this conference, one of the great things which I think makes SMAC unique, is that holistic view of being a clinician. It's not just about knowledge and skills. It is about how you behave, act and feel. And so the session we're talking about, gosh, it could sound a bit negative. There's a lot of things about I'm talking about error and you're talking about well, I'm talking about a case that affected me deeply and then really affected everything else I was doing as part of my clinical and personal life. And so your talk, I think, is a very personal journey. It's a very interesting journey around a case which the family involved have given permission to talk about. I think we should say that up front. But a really interesting experience that you had as a clinician. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? I think as a resuscitation doctor or a doctor in an emergency department, I've been mindful over the years that we see bad stuff often and we cope with bad stuff. We put the bad stuff away and I was used to try and explain it as being a box. We put all these feelings away in a box in the corner and we move on to the next case. We're not like a surgeon where if you have a trauma on the table and something goes horribly wrong, you cancel the rest of your list. If we have something where we see something dreadful or just... Something so shocking that no one else would have to experience that. We get on because there's still patients waiting in minors or there's a long wait in majors or there's just something else to do. And so we don't give ourselves time to think about things. The case that I'm talking about at SMAC is one whereby it shook me to the core, really. It opened up some of those feelings that I tried to hide away. And when I looked back on it, I realised that all the other things I'm lucky enough to do had been affected profoundly by this one Friday afternoon in the summer of 2012. So I take the time just to talk through a little bit about what happens on that day and what it can feel like sometimes as a resuscitationist, as a doctor in a recess room, where you perhaps wonder, did you do the right thing? So this is a case where you were tasked as a trauma team leader. So you're organising a team of clinicians in a major trauma centre. So this is something you do day to day and you've probably done many, many times before. But there was something about this particular case. And I think you see this in other literature that people have, people who work in high intensity posts such as ourselves, they can go through life for long periods of time. And then there's something that just makes them stop, reflect and think. There's something about it. And it can be very, very many different things. Tell us a little bit about the case. So this is a case of a young boy called Charlie. He's 14 years old and he was holidaying near Southampton, where I work. And he'd gone out with his dad on a rigid inflatable boat. He'd done this thousands, well, hundreds of times in the past with no problems whatsoever. They had all the right kit. They were experienced on the water and they hit a wave at the wrong angle and Charlie was thrown overboard and the propeller caused massive injuries to him across the lower part of his abdomen and the top part of his lower limbs and across his groin. And it transected his femoral artery and his femoral vein. And he started bleeding and he bled profusely on the boat. 
The Coast Guard brought him to us in Southampton, but in the end, there was nothing we could do to help him. And I was the trauma team leader and I had pretty definite ideas about when resuscitation was futile, when there was nothing else that we could do. And that went ahead. We secured his airway. We did bilateral thoracostomies. We gave some blood, but nothing happened. And he'd been in asystole for a good long period of time and there was nothing we could have done. But there were some things that happened immediately afterwards that made this case different. So at this point, if I'm listening to that story, I would say that according to the guidelines, according to what most people would write in an exam, stopping at that point of the management of traumatic cardiac arrest would be the right thing to do. Painful though it, it is with a, with a child, but that is the right point to do. So what happened next? So we came to the end of the resuscitation and... I was lucky enough to have an experienced trauma anaesthetist with me who'd actually been out with the army and was really experienced in traumatic cardiac arrest. And he reassured me, said, look, no, this this lad can't survive. It's the right thing that we should stop. And, and we stopped the resuscitation. And it felt tragic and dreadful, but it felt OK, as OK as these things can feel. And it was really the next hour that then changed all of that. So I went to talk to his family and break the news to them. So the family was really very similar to mine. There were people like us, if you like. The mother, father, three boys. Two of the boys were a little bit older. And then one, a sort of baby of the family, a younger one. And Charlie was the baby of the family. We've got one too. And I looked down at the notes as I went in to talk to them about what had happened. Always wanting to make sure I've got the right names and I've, I know exactly what's going on. And I noticed that Charlie's birthday was the same as our middle boy, Jasper, the 20th of September. And all of a sudden, I found myself transplanted into their situation. I found myself not being the doctor, but I found myself being the father sitting on the sofa, waiting for this doctor to come in. And I couldn't separate myself from it. I tried my very best. And then I talked to, to the family. And as you say, I've spoken to them afterwards and got full permission from them to talk about all of this. And I spoke to... Charlie's mum, Jill, and I did everything that we would normally do, trying somehow to ease the pain of this tragedy. And I said, I don't think Charlie would have felt any pain. And I truly believe that. And in her grief, in her distress, she looked at me straight in the eye and she said, you don't know that. And that shook me as well, because normally people just agree. They say, no, thank you so much, doctor. That's really reassuring to know. But she challenged me and questioned me. And I started challenging myself. So I had this parallel vision of me being the family. It all sounds a little bit crazy, but this is what happened. And then Jill, his mum, challenges me. I then went off to my office and I wanted just a bit of quiet time. And one of my colleagues came in, had been at the resuscitation and we talked a bit about it. He seemed to be agreeing with what we'd done. And then he said what I describe in my talk as the seven words that changed everything. Because what he said to me was, do you think you stopped too soon? And this was the phrase that then came to become an obsession for me over the next months and years. And really one I've only just sort of started coming to terms with. And I think it's one that we all have in resuscitation where we make those difficult decisions is there ever more that we could have done? And that was the thing that I struggled with about this case. And so, you, again, objectively, I could say to you that that's just a positive reflection. We should always reflect back on cases and say there's something more that we could possibly have done. That's, that's how we learn. But I think what you're describing, and again, I've seen examples of this myself, 
is when there is an emotional connection or there's just something about this which makes a difference, it's not the same experience. It's not a learning event. It's not just a matter of continuous professional development. There is an engagement which changes both the way that we behave in the future, but also challenges us about whether or not we've let something go which was retrievable. And I can sum that doubt up as two words. And the two words are, what if? What if we'd done something differently? What if I decided that instead of us stopping, we'd gone ahead and done a clamshell thoracotomy, poured blood into him, compressed his aorta, done some of the heroic things that we hear about from SMAC and at other conferences? What if it had been a different trauma team leader? Would Charlie now be out playing hockey instead of no longer being here? And that really was a torture for me. Did I let him down? Did I let his family down? Did I let my colleagues down? And those were the thoughts that I struggled with. Once the seed of doubt is in there, it's very difficult to get rid of, isn't it? What I noticed happened to me afterwards was it affected different parts of my professional life. And I go into the talk and talk about how this was the time when I started doing pre-hospital care. Now, I'd always thought about it and thought it might be a nice thing to do. But this was, if you like, the motivation to be there. Because perhaps if I'd been on the Coast Guard helicopter and trained and better, I could have done something different. And so I can relate that way that my career path went as being directly related to this incident. There's also other things I've been lucky enough to do. So a bit of writing on the St. Emlyn's blog and on the EMJ blog as well. And one particular EMJ blog piece, I wrote it for lots of people to read. Of course I did. I wanted people to read these thoughts, but it was actually a personal letter to Charlie's family. I wasn't in touch with them then. I didn't know how to get, I didn't dare think about getting hold of them, but it was a letter to them. And then the third thing I've, as I've mentioned before, I've been lucky enough to work with the BBC on the casualty program, which is a medical drama. And one specific episode, there are large pieces of this story that go into that and really relate to the difficult decisions we have to make as resuscitationists and trauma team leaders and how we deal with that phrase. What if, what if I'd done something different? What if, I'd been better. What if? What if? What if? And I could see that this case itself was getting into all different aspects of my life. And each week I'd start Googling to find out whether things had happened. And I followed what had happened to Charlie's family. And it became a bit pathological, really. But I can only recognise that now. But I'm sure this is things other people have done. The internet is great for many things, but it does give us an instant access to information. So I knew where Charlie went to school. I knew that he played hockey. I knew about his parents. And this whole case started to subsume me in a way that no other case really had in the past. I think you're describing an experience which will chime with many people who are listening. Certainly if you've been playing the game for long enough and you know, listening to you now, it's just giving me flashbacks. And you know, don't don't feel bad about that. I think it's important that we all recognise that this isn't something which is an Ian Beardsall issue. This is something which will happen to pretty much all of us, or certainly any of us who've got a heart and soul. This will happen at some point, I'm sure. You've been through this, and you're going to talk about it in detail on the day. And I think when that's shown online through the ICN podcast and the Smack podcast, it's, you know, it's going to be a must watch. What's your advice having been through this to somebody else who finds themselves in that position? I think I came to deal with this in two different ways and I wouldn't necessarily say that this is how others should deal with it this is just how I've come to be at peace with what happened really. The first was doing what you've done throughout our discussion today which is putting some objectivity onto the case itself 
And the key to that objectivity came for me when the post-mortem report came through. Now, in the UK, especially if a child dies, these processes can take months, sometimes years to come through. And Charlie's post-mortem report came as a surprise into my inbox at work not that long ago. It was literally within the last year, so a good year and a half after the case had actually happened. And nervous as I was to read it, and I really did get anxious turning to the last page where they put their conclusions, once I'd read it, it reassured me that he had life-ending injuries. And it didn't matter what I'd done, what I'd said on the day, how the team had performed, Charlie would die from those injuries, no matter who was there. And I found that objectivity really reassuring. Now, other colleagues had tried to give it to me, but somehow it being written on a piece of paper was helpful. The second thing that helped me come to terms with it was actually meeting Charlie's mum, Jill. It's still actually quite hard to talk about, but when it came to thinking about my talk, I really wanted to be able to use this exact example and talk about it. I didn't want to say I once had a case and make up the details because of confidentiality. I wanted to be able to relate it to this experience. And so I wrote to his family, to Jill and Simon, his mum and dad, really anxious and nervous. It's one of the hardest letters I've ever written. And for them, I don't think it was a particularly easy letter to receive either. But the culmination of that and some emails was that I met with Jill in London a few months ago and we chatted for about an hour and a half over coffee. Uh, She was interested in why this had affected me so much. She said, and ironically, this may chime with people just as much as anything else. You see this every day. Why was it that Charlie's case affected you so much? And I think that's a good question. And I tried to explain in the way I've explained here. And then I talked to her a bit about how she's dealt with it. Charlie was clearly a gorgeous, gifted, delightful boy. And I'm sad I never got to know him. And how they've dealt with him dying, I can only imagine. But the key thing she said to me, which relates to all of our practice in emergency medicine, Jill said to me, life is random. These events happen through no fault of anybody's. They could happen at any time, day or night. And that's just part of what living is, that these events can't be planned and we've got to move on and move through them and somehow talking to her gave me the strength to move through it was a strange change in our relationship really I was supposed to be the one being strong for her yet somehow she was the one supporting me and it was those two things that have helped me in this case in particular. Ian the story the experience and the resolution I think is obviously a unique set of experiences for you and for the family but will chime with other people who are involved in what we do. I think some really good learning lessons there. I think one of the other aspects is how this started as well, which was almost what sounds like a throwaway comment. Not a throwaway comment, but just one comment, which was almost certainly not intended to deliver the consequences that you experienced. And for me, as both as an individual who may be involved, but also as somebody who may be asked to feedback and give advice to people. I think there's some really important lessons there. And I know, I'm not going to tell you the case, I know that I have done that to somebody else with one phrase which profoundly affected their personal beliefs. And it was no intention of mine to upset them. But, you know, I'm sorry, I've apologised many, many times, but it's very, very easy to do. And so the lesson, another lesson for me from this experience is that if you are the person who's 
speaking to somebody who may appear to be pretty hard on the outside, but has had a bad experience, take time and think before you open your mouth. I completely agree. The colleague who said that to me, even now, I'm not sure he realises what happened afterwards. And he would never mean to be hurtful or critical. He was in a different place. And we've talked about resilience. He was more resilient to the case. To him, this was a medical case. It wasn't a person. It wasn't the youngest child. Of course, he saw Charlie as a boy, but it was about the practicalities. It's what we learn at SMAC. It's about the science. It's about what you do. And that's what he was asking me about. It wasn't intended to affect me in the emotional way that it did, but it's meant that I am now incredibly careful when I talk to colleagues about a case. I might be in a better place. I might be having a more resilient day. Things might be fine for me, but they might not be with the person that you're talking to. Be kind and be gentle because you never quite know how these things are going to affect you. I wanted to share this story for different reasons. It might seem a little bit self-indulgent. It might seem a little bit selfish because in essence, this is a little bit of therapy for me. I get to talk about this thing and I do understand that. But the key I wanted to share was that I think that many people listening to this podcast will have what I would call a Charlie moment. And if you can prepare for that before it happens and you think about it now, I hope that when it does happen to you, because if you do enough medicine, it will inevitably happen to you, you are perhaps more prepared than I was. And you may be able to deal with the tragedy and the sheer horror that we sometimes see because you've given yourself the chance to prepare. And if I could say one thing about this whole episode, that's what I hope this discussion and the talk at SMAC will bring to others. Ian, I think there's a huge amount that we can reflect on there. It's definitely one of those podcasts I think I'm going to listen to again and then maybe revisit in a few weeks' time, and then perhaps in a few months' time. I think there's a lot to, to think about. The other thing I wanted to say at the end of the talk, just to finish off, was never underestimate what you do. We laugh and joke. We are hugely enthusiastic about emergency medicine and who we are and, and how we practice. But it doesn't matter what you do. If you're listening to this podcast, you're halfway there already. You care about what you do, and what you do is important. So just be the best you can be. Look after each other. It's how I always end every podcast. Look after yourself because what we do matters. And I know that we can keep doing it as well as our patients deserve.